Hello, and welcome to another episode of Such a Nightmare, Conversations About Horror. I am, as usual, Catherine Troyer, and I am, fortunately, as usual, joined by Anthony Tresca. Hello there. This is a podcast where the horrifically nerdy meets the terrifyingly academic as we explore that fine line between the horrific and the horrible. Each episode looks at a specific horror text that is, for better or worse, giving us nightmares. And we are so excited to have you join us for today's episode over... Two horror texts. We're going to be diving into the 1960 version of The Little Shop of Horrors and the 1986 version of Little Shop of Horrors as well. So two times The Little Shop. which is super exciting because this is our 50th episode and that yeah. means that we need double the power double the strength of two monstrous plants to hold us uh, up and strong indeed indeed it's important to our survival <laughs> it is which is ironic because audrey too or audrey jr uh, is is the antithesis of survival for most people um indeed. so Anthony, uh, we mentioned this at the end of our of our previous episode as we were setting up for this one, but originally we had planned to, to have our 50th episode be on a different film. We had uh, floated the idea of Psycho. We would floated the idea mm-hmm. of The Babadook. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you suggested Little Shop of Horrors and suggested us looking at the very least at the 1986 musical, but possibly also at both films. What was your, what was your reason or thought behind choosing this film period, but also choosing this film to kind of celebrate our 50th episode. Well, the reason that I chose these films is because uh, I couldn't get us together to go watch a Broadway production of these, and so we couldn't talk about a, uh, about a music, the, the live musical version of these. Uh, but all joking aside about that, I, I mean, I would have much rather ta- us gone to see a musical version of these. Oh, that would have been so neat. We've never seen a play together no i've seen you in production <laughs> um but we've that so that i'm gonna have to add that to my bucket list of things that we will someday do we'll we'll get there we'll get there eventually i love little shop of horrors i grew up on little shop of horrors i saw this original movie probably when i was like five or six years old i was oh my i was very young. little tiny Anthony. i was a i was a child a baby a a, a chap when I saw these. And did you, uh, was it your mom, your dad, both, who introduced you? Like, who was it in your family that, that gave you the gift that is Little Shop of Horrors? You know, I think it was probably my dad. I think we, it was because of the link between Rick Moranis and the other various things that we had watched, like Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. I think sure. I saw Spaceballs probably too young. But Rick Moranis is in all of these other things that I was seeing, and I think it was just like, well, it's time we watch Little Shop of Horrors. And, you know, I kind of loved it. I, it's been one of my favorite musicals since, I guess, probably since then. And it has been one that a lot of, a lot of my taste in musicals have come and gone. Like, there have been musicals that I've been really into for a short period of time, but now I look back on them and I'm like, hmm... No, don't, I'm not as, uh, I don't think I, you, you couldn't pay me to go see that musical anymore. Mm-hmm. But Little Shop of Horrors is not one of them, one of those musicals that I have, my love has lessened for. 
if anything, uh, I love Little Shop of Horrors even more today than I did when I was a a, a wee a wee child, a wee baby. Well, it, and it's kind of hard not to when it's got the music of Alan Menken, mm-hmm. right? Like, I mean, you really can't. Sometimes I wonder, like, what must it be like to know that you have written the music that multiple generations have grown up claiming, not just as, like, the music that they enjoyed, but the music that, like, fulfilled their soul. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because we're, we're talking about The Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, Pocahontas. I mean, we are talking about the films that, you know, I mean, my friends and I used to, when we would swim in the pool, um, we would, like, fight over who got to be Ariel, and the determining factor was who could sing certain parts of of the Little Mermaid music better. The answer was none of us, right? (laughs) None of us were good. Because we also didn't choose, like, one of the catchy songs. We just chose that song that she sings when her voice gets taken. Um, And since we all voted for ourselves, usually the game ended shortly thereafter Mm. because we were all angry Mm -hmm. at each other. But, like, that is 100% Alan Minkin's fault, right? (laughs) Like, he has has shaped this entire generation, so it's hard not to... Not to like the music at the very least, but I, I think you're right. There's something really um, lovely and sustainable about this film. But I must admit, I didn't see it for the first time until maybe three or four years ago, maybe five now. Oh wow! Um, and and I think the reason why there there's two reasons. Uh, those of you that have uh, listened to episodes before know that I have a very weird. Um, like list of films that I have or haven't seen mm-hmm. because I've seen all of the terrible truly like everyone admits they're terrible B movies, but I haven't seen a lot of the classics because I tend to watch most of my movies at this point while I'm doing other stuff. And I refuse to watch movies that matter when they're in the background. Um, But unfortunately a lot of my movie going ends up being in the background. So there's that, but also I have a hard time, as you know, Anthony with, with cult classics Mm -hmm. because I, I tend to not like them um, as much as, as other people do, or I, I find myself, like, unsure. I get too much in my head, right? It becomes sort of, like, meta. I'm like, am I, th- am I liking this enough? Am I liking this enough for what it is? Am I liking it enough as a cult classic? And so then I just feel a lot of pressure and anxiety. Um, and, and for me, Little Shop of Horrors, right, was both a film that I knew I needed to actually watch, mm-hmm. so it meant that I couldn't have it on in the background. And it's got such a, a beloved and, like, determined following, I wasn't sure I would like it, and it saddens me when I don't like films that, that are beloved by by a huge number of people. But, good news, I love it, so it's all good to go. Yeah, um, well, and, that's and it good. Turns out that, <laughs> yeah, and it turns out that this gets to be one of the films. Heather's is another one um, where I'm like, okay, yes, I understand why everyone uh, is so delighted by this particular film. But neither of us had seen the 1960 film no, before. No, which is why a, a huge reason why I was excited to do this episode over Little Shop. The Little Shop Averse is very wide. There are so many diff- things that we could have chosen to discuss. I mean, there is this obviously this original movie and then the movie musical, but there's also numerous uh, productions of it, both off Broadway, on Broadway, um, in California and around the world. But these two different versions of Little Shop provide very different things to discuss and reveal very different things about what where each of the creators were in choosing both their source of horror and what even at its core little shop is about which i think is why these two texts together are going to yield a very interesting conversation 
I hope anyway. <laughs> I think so too. In fact, uh, after finishing the, the 1960 film, because I, wa- I rewatched the 86 film first. Um, so I, did I. So did I. I yeah, I, I think I am very much leaning towards putting this into the next time that I, I teach a horror adaptation class. Because I, I think that what's interesting, like you said, is that um, what these two films reveal side by side are what the creators saw as the source of horror that they wanted to explore. Um, it also reflects very much two very different moments in American history. Um, and and then there's also just the other stuff of how does a film need to change um, if it's going to be adapted as a musical. And so there's just so much rich material in this like space between these two films. So do we want to start uh, with the 1960 film or do we want to start with the 1986 or do we want to like start with both and just kind of go back and forth? What are your thoughts? You know, I think the best way in is probably to start with the original uh, and just get into our initial thoughts and then to discuss that and then move on to the 86 and then compare and contrast them, I think. Yeah. So the 1960 film, uh, it's black and white and... Um, as we mentioned before, you can watch it on, on YouTube as well as other places. Um, it, it's a very, it was an interesting film for me because I, I wasn't quite sure where to place it in terms of genre, right? So obviously it's, it's listed as a horror comedy mm-hmm. and, and I would say that it is a horror comedy in many respects, but I, I feel like the film wasn't quite sure what comedy it wanted to be. Right, because there was sort of the slapstick um, elements of Seymour always tripping and falling, mm-hmm. um, and that that was supposed to be a source of horror that was supposed to feel very, I think, comfortable and familiar to the audiences at the time. Um, and the, but then there was the actual stuff that was funny, right? Um, which sometimes I'm not even sure was the stuff that they intended to have the the biggest response. For me, the best line. Uh, hands down was when um, the two police officers are talking, which is also another interesting element, right? We have this framing device. This is a story told by this cop who's investigating all these murders, which is another odd way into this narrative. It really is. I mean, uh, the production of Little Shop, this original 60s version, is one of the weirder productions that uh, and making of stories. It was originally supposed to be a detective movie that really didn't wasn't really about plants at all in any way. Uh, that was it's a micro this guy this filmmaker who directed who directed this original uh, Roger Corman is known as like this indie B filmmaker who for basically zero dollars and uh, would shoot in like two days entire films that and this this film was shot in conceived in a very short amount of time originally uh originally was envisioned and got everybody involved and signed on as if it was a detective project and then uh after uh, they had gotten all the actors to agree to that uh in the rewrites for this film for the film they changed it to be little shop of horrors and so they kept the framing device of the detective but they put it in this other story which is just one of the many bizarre changes that occurred throughout this the making of this original film, which might have led to it feeling a little bit um, confusing and uh, like it's a lot of elements just cobbled together. <laughs> so you say that the you know this is a 
a small, like, <laughs> no production uh, film, uh, no production value film, right? And, and you can you can see that in in the fact that the majority of the film happens in in one room, right, in the shop. Um, we do get other locations. We get the, um, you know, a Seymour's house. Uh, but but there's also this really interesting way in which I think it's important to think of this filmmaker as an indie filmmaker because um, the scene when the police officers are chasing Seymour, you know, they're out in the middle of a, what, like a, a landfill, right, with all those tires and the toilets. And there was something about that that felt a little uh, French New Wave-y to me um, because they, they were stepping outside of um, the obvious, like, production set in in a way that that felt quote authentic um and and i think that could only happen right so if, if french new wave cinema is happening in the 50s and 60s and this film's coming out in the 60s then our director is very in touch and in tune with stuff and able to play with stuff in a way that the hollywood films were not at the time yeah so again we have this other sort of weird layer right um of what this film is uh, versus what this film, I think, promises to be. Yeah, this film, this type of film would not be able to be made today. This was made, uh, the sets were used from his previous film, Bucket, A Bucket of Blood. Uh, he shot the whole thing in two days, picking up exterior shots with uh, $279 of rented equipment later down the line. Um he would just hide, like, for the scene in which all the kids were running around, he just gave them all, like, like five to ten cents each and just was like, run this way, children, come on, come on. Uh, and this, it literally just also couldn't be made because the rules have changed about what you can do with actors and buying out an actor's per full performance. Um, as you would not be able, to, you literally could not make this film today uh, because it would be breaking all of the standards of filmmaking. However, in this period of time when the film industry was changing, this guy was able to use uh, his like insane skills and like D D Y uh, DIY uh, sensibility to create this insane film. This and it is insane. Yeah. Insane. It is it everything is. you've been talking about about how it feels weird and just a little bit off sometimes. I agree a hundred percent. It is a wacky film. And so to go back to like my favorite part of it, humor wise, right? It's again not not what I think the majority of people would have wanted. I think they would have felt very comfortable with Seymour's, um, you know, uh, clumsiness and the humor in that. I think they would have felt very comfortable in the humor of Audrey messing up words, or even the humor of um, Seymour's mom, who clearly has Munchausen uh, by. Not by proxy, but just Munchausen, right? She, or she's a hypochondriac. Um, but uh, for me, the funniest moments were things like uh, when the one police officer is like, you know, hey, how's the wife? And he's like, good. And he's like, how's the kids? Um, and he's like, lost one. And he's like, really? How? And he's like, playing with matches. And he's like, oh. And he's like, them's the breaks. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and just like, or... Or the gentleman that ate the flowers, yeah. right, uh, was so funny because I don't think I've ever seen any, I don't think I've ever seen that character before. No. Like, in anything, and right? It's a, and it's such a, moments like that are, show how clever the filmmakers actually are. Yes. You have a, yes. you have a plant that eats, that eats humans, well, oh, now you have a human who eats plants. It's a, exactly. it's a silly thing that tells you where the film is going to go, and it's a... Albeit 
a stupid gag, eating the flowers never failed to make me go to like both make me laugh and also make me groan a little bit because I was like, this, they're bringing this joke back again. But it's it works and it's weird. And but it's weird, like you're saying. It's weird and it works. Um, but it works because it, it kind of puts you in this uncomfortable space. It also works because, like you said, so much of this film is about consumption. Um, and the the other scene that awkwardly worked um, was when Seymour and Audrey are served the best meal of, of Seymour's life because his mom is the best cook ever. Uh, the meal by his mom, and it's all different types of medicine. Right. Um, and so like they start with uh, a sampling of some cough syrup, but not just any cough syrup, the best cough syrup. And then they have cod oil uh, soup. Um, and so there's this this interesting way in which this film is asking us to think about how we consume, how we consume um, sort of mindlessly, how we consume intentionally um, and whether or not the consumptions that we do to further our own end are really that much further away um, from what Audrey Jr. does. Um, which is a lot to pack into a film that is not very long. And it's a lot to pack into a film that doesn't get to rest on like Night of the Living Dead for some of those consumption metaphors, right? I think today it's really easy to do a consumer consumption horror film because we have this rich zombie uh, sort of tradition. But um, this film's having to kind of tread some of that ground for us, uh, which is really, really interesting. Um but the dynamic between Seymour and, and Audrey Jr., I think, is one of the, the biggest ways in which we begin to, to create a whole new creature in the 1986 film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because there are a lot of elements that you can clearly see they carried over. Technically, uh, and I suppose this serves as a bit of a transition into the 86 film, uh, you can see a lot of the elements from this original 60 film. The plot is more or less the same. They rework parts of it and give different things to different characters. Like, it's reworked that Seymour tricks Mushnik into the plant in the same way that Mushnik, uh, in this version, tricks the robber into the plant. So, mm-hmm. same action, different characters. Uh, but there are some, there are quite a bit of significant reworks done to the musical as well that are important to acknowledge and I ultimately think benefit the musical adaptation and I'll give the film a deeper source of horror than the 1960s film was able to to put together. And that's not to, I don't want to sound like I'm uh, being too harsh on the 60s film. It's just, uh, I think they're just doing, they're trying to do different things, and that's okay. Yeah, there, I think the the moment that the 1960 film sort of lost some of its its power, if you will, um, in terms of, at least for me, being a sort of deeply horrific narrative, was when uh, Audrey Jr. possesses Seymour and yeah. kind of like forces Seymour to do his 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 plans. I think at that moment, right, that the one of the interesting parts of the the film, which is a very familiar story, right, it's that sort of monkey's paw narrative. If you're given the opportunity to have your wishes come true, are you willing to pay for the very negative uh, price that may come as a result of that? And I think um, we lose some of that in the the 1960 film in a way that we don't lose in the 1986. I do want to say, though, in terms of horror, um, I thought that the Audrey Jr., in terms of the special effects um, and the prop 
that is the creature was was much more disturbing in the 1960 film. Um, first, because of the sort of like fibrous um, web-like thing that sort of is in the inside when it when he opens. Um, but uh-huh. also, I thought the faces right peering in the the little flowers was was very kind of creepy. It was very uncanny feeling. That was really um, spooky. Yeah, but again. I think you're right that that the 1986 film is a little bit more actualized because uh-huh. it's not because it doesn't add that like weird sort of um, possession narrative in there. Yeah, the removal of Seymour's agency really does kind of undermine some of that some of what I thought the point of the original narrative was, which is like, I mean, you consume actively on a daily basis but what if you had to what if someone made you pay for all the consumption you act you consciously do but if you take away seymour's agency then then seymour is not actively participating in the system which is just different um and you know it, it still works all mostly i mean the 1960s film is still largely enjoyable even if it is a weird experience and somewhat inconsistent in how well it's able to succeed as a horror film. And it's interesting because I I wouldn't say at all that the 1986 film is any less of a weird experience. No, 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 no. It's just... It's just different. It's just a a very different one. Exactly. Because we have um, one of, I think, the, the oddest concepts for a musical and there's several of them right i think sweeney todd is also a delightful uh odd uh decision for a, a musical but 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 again it's yeah. one of my favorites right so but 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 there's just like if you were to pitch this idea i feel like you'd have a lot of of selling to do right like but wait there's gonna be a song about it being a dentist mm-hmm. no i promise you it will be a marvelous song um and, and there's there's so many things about this film that are so delightfully quirky from our uh, chorus mm-hmm. uh, who who is both literally a chorus in that sort of like um, dream girls sort of sense but also sort of serving as a Greek chorus which so we have this um, strange way in which this film is, is very much um, original but also hearkening back to to the classic form of, of theater of drama yeah um, what are some of the other things that you think are, whether or not they work, sort of slightly odd elements of the, well, the 86 film? I mean, I think I just I wanted to go back just a tad bit uh, to say it is a weird thing to make a movie out of. And I don't think they would have been able to do it without the proof of concept 1982 off-Broadway production of this. Because this is not the first musical adaptation of Little Shop. The first one was the off-Broadway production that year. Uh, that got to, that was that first look into it and the justification which ultimately allowed them to make it. And the original, that musical when it came out in 82 was, as you said, also weird. It's not like the musical, the one that came to Broadway, was uh, a really made sense of monetarily to invest in. Mm-hmm. If anything, it's even weirder because it's a little longer and it's e- and it's a lot darker than this original movie is which is some of where my problems with the theatrical version of this 86 film uh, stem from. Stem from? I'll, li- <laughs> I'll leave it <laughs> alone after that pun. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> gotcha. Two in a row. Two in a row. Let's, 
I love the listen, I love this movie. I love these these types of jokes, so we're gonna keep it going. We may keep it going. It may not be done actually. We'll see. Yeah, we'll see, dear I listeners. I knew that was a lie. <laughs> but yeah, no, I I I there are a lot of weird elements in this production. I mean, just the production design itself is very strange. It's very it's much more elaborate than the 1960s film. You can clear that they you can see that they clearly had a budget and they were not just reusing interior sh- sets from another film. Yes. Um the performances are very strange in this. They are highly specific in a lot of ways, but they are wacky. I mean, the characterization of Audrey in this as Ellen Green, who is delightful, and she's made a whole career out of playing Audrey, basically. But it's admittedly a strange way to characterize Audrey. Um, It is. And it's also just, it's not just the performance, although that's a huge part of it. It's, It's the whole, her whole characterization in this film, right? She goes from being someone who... Yeah, it just kind of is a is a little may, maybe a little ditzy or a little uneducated, um, to to being someone that is being regularly and systematically abused and and everyone is upset by that, but not so upset they're going to do anything about it really. Yeah. Um. And so so there's like, and and even her there there it becomes very clear that she um she's addicted to this right that that like every character has an addiction in this narrative and hers is is being um abused she can't seem to escape that cycle which is very realistic but like you said that's an interesting thing to put into a character that is in many ways just supposed to be the love interest right um of of the main character but she becomes a character in her own right because of yeah the actress because of these additional sort of layers and i think it makes it a lot more interesting and adds into the narrative that is begun in the 60s version of the price of that you pay for consumption but is fully realized in the musical adaptation this one is much more explicitly a critique of the alienation that comes from capitalism and the horrifying things that individuals can do when they are desperate uh, yes and they are left alone and powerless and we get to see that like the the dream the the american dream as actualized by by audrey's song uh-huh. um is plastic it's fake shallow um it's shallow it's 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 literally as well as figuratively shallow, right? Like that scene, even though we see the yard, um, and even though we see the depth of the yard, um, that Seymour is, is mowing, which is just so weird. Yeah. Um, the, the setup, right? The, the staging of that particular song, um, does not have the, the sort of dimensional depth of, of most of the other elements of of the film Mm -hmm. um and so we get to see i think you're right that like this may be the dream but and it's brighter and it's shinier but it is also just as if not more artificial Mm -hmm. and of course um at the very end when we see like audrey three right um we we get to realize that it is no less contaminated um by our insatiable desire to consume yeah, you know this is a this is a rare property. I, so much from the '80s has kind of aged really poorly, at least in my opinion, because 
that is the that was the era of Reagan, and it was the era of just like unabashed. We love um, pro America kind of propaganda that seeped into all of the horror texts uh, at this time of just being very. A lot of them are alt are very affirmative, and this is not just horror texts. This is a lot of stuff from the eighties. I mean, you look you can look at just about any classic eighties films, and you can find it. Uh, this optimistic -y kind of version of America being played at, but this is a rare one that does not seem to tacitly accept the optimism brought on by the Reagan administration. So I'm going to push against the, the statement that, that many 80s films have not, not aged well, because I, I love 80s films and not just horror. Um, but, you know, I mean, we're talking... Breakfast Club and Pretty in Pink and Sixteen Candles and just one of the guys if we're talking about like the the rom-coms of the era and we're talking about The Goonies and um, E.T. and uh, Nightmare on Elm Street and several of them and Little Shops of Horrors and Heathers. However, um, when I think about the, those films, the ones that have survived, if you will, they're not always explicitly disaffirmative because, because I don't think that's what people wanted. Um, and we'll, we can talk about that more mm -hmm. when we talk about the ending of, of Little Shop. Mm -hmm. um, but they are all pushing the boundary or saying, okay, this may be where you were all at, but we want you to know this is not where we need to end up. Like, for example, um, the film Just One of the Guys, the premise is, is that she uh, doesn't get a, a she doesn't get an opportunity that she wants um, because she needs to be at a different school. So she dresses up as a guy and she does it. And then the whole film is about her realizing that, like, how she can be strong in a patriarchal system, how the patriarchal system is a problem. Um, and yes, of course, it's a, it's a rom-com, so she ends up um, with a guy at the end, but it's not the guy that she ended up with at the beginning, right? Like, so it's still a, a, a film that is, is pushing at things. Same with um, Breakfast Club and things like that, where at the end of the day, it may wrap up in a way that feels very affirmative, um, but it's still giving us these instances of, of discontent um, or an awareness that, that we may be as much the problem as we are the answer. Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to disagree with you on, on that part, but I'm going to agree with you on everything else that this is a, a period of time where I think everyone culturally speaking was wanting to celebrate all the goodness, right? Like all the, the, the things that made themselves really great and any problems were going to be the things intruding alien style, right? Into our lives, whether that be, um, you know, communism, because heaven forbid, um, or that be, um, drugs because drugs are coming from the outside but they're not coming from us good folk they're coming from, Im from the immigrants uh, immigrants right Russians. like yeah i mean there's any yeah, number of so, things that we were afraid of uh invading the pureness of america yes. which is a laughable concept but it's a it was a sentiment of the time <laughs> it is and it's one that you can very much see in this 86 film right yep. so how did um how did Seymour get Audrey too? Well, um, by interacting with some of the only times that he interacts with non-white characters in the entire film. Goes to the Asian flower uh, 
district. Exactly. Exactly. And and also and then that is a carryover from the 60 film, but it's it's shown to us right in this 86 film. We also get the under impression, not the impression. We are also told that this is an alien creature, right? The, which, the Audrey, too. which is markedly different than Seymour creating kind of yes. this being a natural uh, plant yes. created through the yes. power of botany. This is now yes. uh, it's not a human creation. It is instead yes. an alien. <laughs> Yes, something from space, which is terrifying us, which again makes sense considering we're in the midst of the Cold War. Yep. Um, so, so what's interesting about this film is that it manages to be disaffirmative in a lot of respects. Um, but much like we talked about with Nightmare on Elm Street, if you are, don't want to see that, if you're not comfortable with, um, the, the commentary on, on how, we might be a problem, consumerism might be a problem, then don't worry, we can put over that um, a palatable source of horror, right? This alien other that's that's threatening our good folk. Um, and so I think that's, that for me makes this film so interesting because, uh, I don't know, that there's something really delightful and terrible about this, these contrasting messages at play. Yeah, I... And I think the contrasting message in the 86 film is about the only thing that I don't 100% love about this film. And it's why, I, as much as I do really like this adaptation, and I like a lot of the acting, and I like a lot of how it, is actu- how it actually comes together, the directing, for the most part, is really, really strong. Um, it's Frank Oz, is that right? Yes, it's Frank Oz. Frank Oz. Which means that the creature features are, is, I mean, you know, Audrey too is beautiful. It's so cool. Um, the puppetry is amazing. The puppetry is amazing, and you wouldn't expect anything less from no. Oz, right? So we get all of that. It's so, all of these things are so good. However, as we've been alluding to this whole time, the end of this is significantly altered from the ending of the 1982 off-Broadway musical version of this. In the original ending of this, it does take a more explicitly disaffirmative ending, in which Seymour uh, is not able to save Audrey. Audrey. Audrey then sacrifices herself to the plant to go somewhere that's green, and so she'll mm-hmm. always be with him forever. Goes in there, Seymour then gets mad at the plant, tries to kill the plant, the plant reveals that this has all been a part of their plan the whole time. They're a sucker. And then Seymour tries to kill the plant, and then the plant eats Seymour. And then we see the plant consume the entire world, and the all of the actors come out of the plant, a la the 1960s ending, and they're attached to it, their faces are and whatnot, and they sing about, don't feed this plant. And then the musical ends with every everyone dead and the theater that you are in being consumed by Audrey too. You get through the magic of theater and puppetry, the theater that gets eaten up and you are, as an audience member, consumed. Full circle moment for the message of consumption. Those who consume are destined to be consumed by something bigger and more powerful. A, a largely disaffirmative message. There's not... I. There's not a lot of ways to be like, and now it's happy uh, to that ending. Yeah, yeah, not at all. Ha- um, however, and, and, and the w- interesting thing about the 86 film is they originally shot an ending that was similar to that. They did. So um, this is uh, a, 
quote uh, in an article by Mark Jensen, which I'm going to talk more about in a little while, because this is, um, he raises my other problem with the 1986 musical. Love it. Love uh, it. But he says, Let's talk um, you know, yeah, but he, he's quoting um, another source and he says, Oz previewed the original ending to a test audience and they were shocked and horrified. Oz said, they hated us when the main characters died. In the play, they're eaten by the puppet, but you know they're coming out again for a curtain call. But the power of movies is different. They really believed in those characters and they were angry. And so, right, we changed to the to the 1986 film's ending where Seymour and Audrey defeat Audrey too, despite the fact that there's nothing about that that makes sense. They move... Um, to their dream house uh, or to Audrey's dream house, they escape Skid Row. They get to have that, that somewhere that's green element, um, which kind of, not kind of, which is problematic because it, it both implies that, you know, the whole somewhere that's green, right? The, the, that references is that like the, the grass is always greener, uh, you know, somewhere else. Um, and so we lose that when when suddenly they are able to attain or achieve that greenness. And it's presented um, to the audience as being a good thing. Yes. It's, which is, yes. I think, you know, I think I even maybe would have been more willing to go with this ending if it was revealed also that it's still shallow. And that, yes. yay, they made it out, but they made it out back into the world, which is well, still bad and awful. And they try, right? They give us that final moment of Audrey three, as I'm as I'm dubbing him, um, where we get to see the tiny little adorable plant again, and you know, and he smiles real big, and so we understand that even in the suburbs, um, you cannot escape whatever Audrey two represents, be that consumerism um, or the the threat of the other um, or or whatever it might be, right? Like the, that that is not entirely able to to be something that you can escape from, but I don't, I don't, it's just not enough. Right. It's, it's sort of, um, it's, I, it's an attempt to, to make a film that would be palatable to, again, the 1980s audience while also being a horror film. Right. Which means that it has to be, um, giving us something darker. And, and I, I think that, that that is, like you said, a problem of this particular adaptation. It's rectified a little bit if you seek out the director's cut in which you can watch the incredible sequence of puppetry in which the, all of these puppets destroy various locations around the world. Um, and it's quite, it's really good. Like that original ending, which is, it's not the same as the Broadway uh, ending. They do, there is still a little bit of difference. Uh, but... It's more cl close in spirit, at least, to that original disaffirmative ending, and it's quite good. So I would recommend, if you haven't seen the director's version, that you do seek that out and you watch it, because it fixes it fixes some of the problems, uh, at least that I had. However, you mentioned that you had another problem you wanted to discuss, because while the ending is a, is a big problem, ultimately for me, I think when I'm thinking about this 86 film, I am able to... I just choose to ignore the ending, which is a thing that I have done many times with many films that this we've discussed true. in which I just think that the that the filmmakers, in, partic in this case, bowed to the pressures of the audience and gave the audience what they wanted to see rather than what they needed to see. And it's interesting because there have been times we have not been willing to, to forgive uh, the ending, right? Um, I, I think back to 
hereditary, hereditary. which I still maintain, uh, you know, lost its its power because of those final minutes. Um, but I think that you're right because of this film can kind of serve as a, in the same way that Nightmare on Elm Street, the original does, that it can kind of serve on these multiple levels that it offers just enough that you can read it, um, at least partially disaffirmatively, um, even as you're reading it partially affirmatively. I- I'm willing to, to forgive it. But the bigger issue that I have um, is one that is is actually not even explicitly communicated in the narrative, but is one that I think is, is important and worth talking about. And so I'm going to be referencing a, a fantastic article by Mark Jensen. Uh, the article is called Feed Me, Power Struggles and the Portrayal of Race in Little Shop of Horrors. And this came out in a 2008 uh, issue of Cinema Journal. What I think is delightful is that Mark Jensen is, is a composer um, and music scholar. So I really appreciate the fact that what he's going to be talking about is rooted a lot in the music of things. But his his thesis, one that I 100% agree with, um, is that, and I'm just quoting from him, while the surface of the action is grounded unproblematically in the issue of class struggle and what has been described as a very simple urban fairy tale, this surface is problematically grounded in an unspoken portrayal of American race relationships in the 1960s. Um, and so there's some things that this film does in terms of, of race. And again, it, it's a race issue that uh, Jensen and I agree is, says is, is not ever explicitly communicated in the narrative, but can be found both in some of the decisions of production, um, as well as very explicitly in the music that I, I think is worth talking about. So first, this isn't the first time that, that a Little Shop of Horrors text has had elements of race in it. Uh, Anthony, you and I talked about the fact that the 1960s film uh, by Corman has um, a lot of the humor is based on, on Jewish puns, such as the minor character of Mrs. Shiva, uh, who comes to the flower shop constantly uh, to get flowers for her um, loved ones, which unto itself doesn't work because that's not a Jewish tradition, but also a Shiva is what uh, the mourning period after a relative's death is. And you even said that the film has been criticized. It, the original 60s film was criticized for being anti-Semitic. Uh, however, a lot of the people involved in it were Jewish and they pushed back against it and they were like, just presenting Jewish characters on screen is not anti-Semitic. This is a satire. So they're like, they didn't, a lot of the, there was a lot of confusion around that from the people who are actually involved in the production because they were like, it seems like everybody just kind of missed the point. But it's a, it's a, it is a thing that the film will forever have with it is that it ha- was accused of being anti-Semitic and that inevitably uh, affected the other productions of it, particularly the 86 movie in which it greatly reduces the only explicitly now Jewish character, Mr. Mushnick, and it cuts his main number that is included in the off-Broadway um, production for an 82, Mushnick and Son, cuts his number and greatly reduces his speaking time. So whether or not that was directly a reaction to the 60s film being accused of anti-Semitism, I don't know. However, the 60s film was accused of anti-Semitism, and then when you re- when you do the movie again in 86, the Jewish... The, the only explicitly Jewish character's role is reduced. So it seems like there was at least some effect of that on there. And and there's elements that 
different elements of, of race that trickle uh, into the 1986 film. So Jensen talks about, um, I think, a rather apt metaphor that both the 60 film and the 86 film can be read as sort of a Faustian tell, uh, right, where you're making a deal with the devil um, and you have to decide if you're willing to pay that price. But what uh, Jensen does later is he talks about the fact that um, in a in the 86 film, the majority of the, the lead cast is, is all white and our primary non-white characters are our uh, singers, right, who are setting up our story and narrating things. But also, even though Audrey too is not physically human, he is consistently portrayed as African-American. So Levi Stubbs of The Four Tops was selected to provide the voice of Audrey too in the movie. And Oz states in an interview, and this again is coming from Jensen, that the clear blackness of Stubbs' voice was one of the primary reasons for his selection. And this is an actual quote from um, Oz. He was exactly what I was looking for. Somebody who had an edge to him, who was real black, real straight, who had a touch of malevolence, but could be really silly and funny at the same time. Um, and of course, there was an attempt to to kind of rephrase some of that um, about the like that concept of the um, the street, right? Real street, uh, real black. And so Oz um, said that that he couldn't actually imagine what a white street white voice would sound like. That that if there was such a thing, it would actually be a ripoff uh, of a black voice. Um, now, with that said, uh, Oz Oz was sort of horrified by criticism of. Uh, Audrey too, as being a physical caricature uh, of uh, African-American physiology. Um, and he said, I tried to make sure when Lionel designed the plant that the lips were toned down as much as possible because I didn't want any comments like that. We weren't trying to make it look black. We were trying to make it look like a plant, but we had to have lips. It certainly wasn't intended and if people see it that way. I'm sorry. Right. So um, so there's this kind of weird tension in place between what Oz demanded the voice sound like which was, quote, real black, real street, um, and and how some people have have read the the appearance of, of Audrey, too. Yeah, this is, this is one of the elements of the production, and at least that has always kind of confused, that has confused me for a long time, even, if, even when I wasn't as much aware of it when I was younger, is that it is frustrating this, that there is this need to have the villainous plant always be portrayed by a black character by a black actor it uh yes it really even if it is unintentional as oz is suggesting plays into this larger narrative that in our culture of the scary alien black person which is i so i whether or not oz is himself is willing to acknowledge that that is certainly an implication that is with the musical, and that has always been there because it yes. is common to cast. It yes. is it, this. It is not like just a, oh, Oz messed up. That's how they did it in the original '82 production. Yes. That's how they did it in this one. That's how the, most revivals have done it. It it is just that is what you do. That I'm not saying that is a good thing though. And what I what I really appreciate about Jensen's article that I would have, as a non musician, never been able to to articulate, even if I kind of noticed it unconsciously is that he says that it's not just an issue of casting and it's not just an issue of the appearance of Audrey too. Uh, this is again a quote from him. He says, the innocence of Seymour's initial style, music readily consumed by a white audience, is sharply contrasted with Audrey 2's R&B. 
The introduction of this new musical style is immediately associated with coaxing Seymour into his first transgressive act, while simultaneously corrupting his musical palate. That's super interesting. I had yeah. never thought about that before. I know. That's I've... why, that's a, this is a, we should, uh, so I hope we're going to link this article in the description yes. of this. So yes. if you want to check this article out, listeners, I would, re- I would recommend you do. Yeah, this is one of those moments that gave me chills, right? Because it shows why why scholarship can be so valuable because that's not something I would know to read, mm-hmm. right? Um, that I would need someone who was a musician to, t- to tell me that. But thinking through, I can see how Seymour's later songs have been, again, quote, corrupted um, by this R&B. And then uh, what is delightful is that Jensen takes it a step further. And I was like, mind blown. So he talks about the fact that the other thing we have to consider, the other threat if you will, um, that, that we are presented with in this film, um, comes in the form of, of Steve Martin's dentist character, mm-hmm. who is very clearly an Elvis-inspired character with a leather jacket, yep. the slicked back hair, even the music. And then, again, I'm just going to read from Jensen. Jensen says, Without getting too deeply embroiled in a discussion of Elvis's role in race relations of the 1950s, it is worthwhile to compare the dentist, Scrivello, and Audrey too briefly from this perspective. These two characters are portrayed as similarly transgressive in some ways. Most importantly, both Audrey II and Scrivello appear to relish domination in the infliction of unnecessary pain. Mm-hmm. The main difference between them is the fact that Scrivello has channeled his, quote, natural tendencies into a successful professional career within the mainstream community, while Audrey II remains an alien outsider. Scrivello may have monstrous tendencies, but he accepted because he is human, read white, in a way that Audrey too is not. And then he quotes somebody who talks about the fact that with Elvis Presley, we have to remember that Elvis is this complex issue of race, class, age, region, and commerce. Mm -hmm. Because Presley may have performed rhythm and blues with an integrity, style, and passion, but he also benefited from a system that perpetuated racial inequality. Yep. Right? Um... So we have another instance in this narrative in which we're seeing that the threat to our good, kind folk who just want so desperately to live the American dream um, are people who are stylistically, uh, musically, visually, audibly uh, portrayed and and colored um, as non-white. Although to that to that point, with that introduction of the comparison, it is interesting there's not much there is undeniably it is clearly a problem when you when you have always consistently your villain be portrayed as a black character and that is acknowledged and written in even to the music this black style and this corruption of it however i think there is some level of critique even in, present in that as well by if you're juxtaposing these two, particularly when you add the juxtaposition of the dentist yes. with the plant yes. in that it's like they're not fundamentally different the only thing that is fundamentally different is their perception uh, within the within with from the audience, from the people in the around them in the narrative of the film itself. So I think there is potentially some ways to rec- perhaps rectify this thing that is in there if you play into this element of critique that is already present. Because yes. and I think that to some extent that is even probably the intent. It is just a shame that uh, some of it's not nearly as well executed as it could have been. Yes, 
Yeah, so here's another place where with just a little bit more pushing, right? Because like you said, Scrivello is shown to be a villain. He right? is, cl- clearly. I don't think you clearly, are supposed right? to no. root for this guy. For he, a is a, he is a sadist. He is a abusive individual who makes everyone's life worse. However, yes. because of his white privilege, he's able to get yes. rich off of this, and he's able to be incredibly successful and get away with his behavior despite it causing so much clear harm. And so if the film would have just been able to articulate a little bit more, I mean, I'm not saying there should have been a song called White Privilege, although I would pay good money to to listen to that song, particularly if it was written by Alan Minkin, because it would be so catchy. Um, but but if it, this, again, I feel like is one of those places where we could have just had a little bit more, right? You know, there is interesting that you say that. In the 82 musical, there's another song given to the dentist called... It, it's just the gas, which a little bit goes more into the problems of the dentist. Seymour is able to justify to himself uh, not saving the dentist from the gas mask in this song, because as he explains to himself and the audience who is listening to this song, it is more just to let this monster die than it is to save them here. And so, but they cut that song from the 86 film. And I think it's another instance of, as we're suggesting, the film being unwilling to really commit to these ideas that uh, are present in in the both the narrative, the themes of the film, the songs even themselves. It's just not willing to go far enough in order to really carry through. And some productions of Little Shop of Horrors have really played into the elements of what you're talking about. There's a California production in that came out in... Uh, 2019 that really leans into the issues of race in in present in Little Shop of Horrors and does some really unique stuff by casting both Seymour as well as Audrey as people of color, still keeping Mushnik's Jewish status and keeping the dentist as a white outsider and playing into these racial un- these racial thing uh, racial undertones at least in the 86 movie and makes those racial undertones explicit within the narrative itself. And so that adaptation of it is quite interesting, I think, and shows that although this 86 version uh, didn't get everything right, that doesn't mean the answer is to scrap everything about yeah. Little Shop of Horrors. It means go back to the drawing board and do it better. Yeah, when you told me, I, I kid you not, when you mentioned the 2019 production and, and the intentional decisions they made, I got chills um, because, you know, Jensen says whether or not this this issue of races is subtle or not. Once you see it, it's kind of hard to ignore it. Um, it seems a little difficult that it's completely by accident. And this continued monster narrative, monster metaphor of, of the black alien others is something we need to get away from. Um, and what you just said is, is the power of horror, right? To adapt and to adopt. Um, and, and that's the power and beauty of, of adaptation is that um, there is magic to be found in the 1960s version that got carried over to mm-hmm. the Broadway version and from the Broadway version mm-hmm. to the 1986 version. And you're right. The answer is not, I don't think, to to cast aside the, the little shop verse. I, I think the answer is to to ask ourselves, where can we go next? Um, and mm-hmm. how can we continue to have this rich text? And, and I, that just makes me so happy to know that um, rather than, mm-hmm. than the sort of 
effects of cancel culture where we just kind of like shut the door and pretend things didn't exist. We're saying, let's take this property that is problematic. Let's adapt it, make it less problematic. And let's be prepared Mm -hmm. in 10 more years for people to say, hey, this version is still problematic. Let's adopt it, adapt it again. Yeah. And now not every production of this is quite as transgressive. There was at the exact same time as there was a 2019 production of Little Shop that really leaned into these racial elements there was a a little shop that came off Broadway in 2019 that had basically an all-white cast. And their answer to these kind of problems that were in the music was to change the musical style pretty much entirely so that not to really any other benefit other than to take out these kind these kinds of black sounds that the musical was accused of including. And they changed it to more like, laid like jazzy influences which is also problematic yet again it leads into more latin music and samba feels which is still problematic so they changed it to answer these critiques but they ultimately still were appropriative and had a large and mostly white cast and didn't really adequately begin to even address these issues they they were just like if we change the music enough then we'll we'll fix the problem but all they did was create themselves another problem. So I guess uh, in summation, it's hard to adapt. It's hard to do these things, but just because it's hard doesn't mean you shouldn't try and doesn't mean you shouldn't hold people accountable when they mess up. I think I would like to see a really explicitly queer version. That would be super Um, fun. I'm not sure. I don't have much more than that. Other than the fact that I think I want Seymour and Audrey two to get together in the end. Oh, interesting. See, I was I was thinking that a really easy way that you could queer it would be to have Seymour be like a like a clearly gay man, and then have Audrey to be a drag queen mm. or some type of either a drag queen or an explicitly trans ca- character of some sort, because then that complicates the relationship that they have with the dentist, as well as complicates the relation that they have with Seymour and complicates the relationship they have to the plant. Yes. Uh, I think that doing that would, That'd be, would be super interesting. interesting. Uh, but Little Shop, great text, very rich for adaptation. Lots of, th- we've said a lot of yes. things about it. And we would love to hear your thoughts because part of the reason that I was so excited um, to talk about this film now is that that, like I said at the beginning, this is a film that has a, a strong, um, beloved fan base. Uh, and so we know you are out there. We know that you are yeah. excited <laughs> about all of the versions. Um, and we'd love to know your thoughts about it. So, Anthony, what should they do if they want to uh, share with us their thoughts? Well, you can always uh, get in touch with us via our email or our social medias. Uh, let us know what you think. If you're watching this on YouTube, feel free to type down in the comments below your reactions to any of the little shop things. Uh, you can also, while you're on our social medias letting us know, you can go ahead and follow us there. Uh, no reason not to. Thank you so much for listening. We are going to be back, of course, in just a little while with our next episode where we are going to continue our foray into everything that is Nightmare on Elm Street. And so the next film in the franchise that we will be looking at is... 1989's A Nightmare on Elm Street 5, The Dream Child. And 
And in the meantime, you know what? Why don't you just go out and have a spooktacular day? <laughs>